You could drag humankind almost anywhere by manipulating the enormous energies of procreation. You could goad humans into actions they would never have believed possible. One of his teachers had said it directly. This energy must have an outlet. Bottle it up, and it becomes monstrously dangerous. Redirect it, and it will sweep over anything in its path. This is an ultimate secret of all religions. This is Genre. We're reading genre classics and pulp gold, and we watch the occasional blockbuster. We try to keep all of our references to books and authors that we've previously read together for this podcast, so we can draw connections between genres. Can we create a web of connections between books in different genres and time periods? I don't know, but we're going to try. Right now, we are reading the entire Dune series, front to back, start to finish. Frank Herbert, not Brian Herbert, just the good stuff. <laughs> and this week, we are reading God and... We're not reading God Emperor this week. We are reading Heretics of Dune by Frank Herbert. God Emperor, great book also. I'm Bob. I'm interested in cowboy stories. Mike Hammer. Oh, hopefully some spy novels coming up pretty soon. Badabadoo. Oh, yeah. And some uh, horror stories on the side. I'm John. I'm interested in the way genre fiction explores the tension between the trope a character embodies and the unique individual behind it. I'm Zach. I like stories that give us a skewed perspective on things happening today. Things that spice up my life and worm their way into my thoughts like a face dancer in the midst of my everyday life, so to speak. Speaking of worm their way into your thoughts, my, my favorite thing about this book series is how like it or not, it seems to just change the way you think about stuff going on in your life. Like sure. the, the Herbert perspective has kind of been, it feels like permanently overlaid on my own perspective. For example, I was sent a link the other day for this new technology company that will clone your dog for you. Oh. They will gather up DNA and cells and put it on ice. And anytime you want a new dog, they will just... They'll just grow it in a Petri dish and you'll have a brand new puppy version of your favorite pet. I see myself having a a long line of Duncan Idaho's of my (laughs) dog for the rest of my life. Yeah. So that's where I'm at. My gosh. Is that a real story? That's real. That is real. You want the link? It's really expensive. (laughs) I really liked this book. It was very difficult to get into at first. It feels scattered at first. There's a lot more characters, and I think that might be intentional. It's a very different book from God Emperor, where we have, you know, a lot of one-on-one conversations and just one plan, the golden path going forward, 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 forward. Now, what are we, 1,500 years after the death of Leto II? 1,500 years after, and now everyone has shot into the outer reaches of the universe. We don't know what's out there. It's just all darkness. We have the Bene Gesserit, the Bene Tleilax trying to survive, and then there's other outer people coming in. So there's just all of these new characters invading the Dune universe that we've known before. It feels very weird reading this book. Yeah, I'll tell you what I like about the new characters that they show up hmm. in. Not just like the entire cast of new characters, because this is, you know, with the exception of the clone Duncan Idaho, this is entirely mm-hmm. new characters we're seeing. But we're also given these people from the scattering. And for them, we don't meet them. You know what I mean? Like we... Yeah. I think at one point they're described as like puppets. Tag sees the people around him as puppets, but who's holding yeah. the strings? So we just see representatives of these people. One person with gray hair and green eyes, you know, something that identifies them as alien. But we don't know what they want. We don't know where they're from. We don't know why they're there. And there seems to be more of them, like more c- conflicting groups of them than we can really wrap our heads around. We get to know the honored Matres a little bit. They've kind of come back in after the scattering, but they seem to be interact. They're referencing people we don't know. There's evidence of other people out there that we don't know and their weapons. And then there's all of these invisible no ships. There's all this uncertainty in this book. And yet we spend the whole book focused mainly on very familiar groups and characters, the Bene Gesserit and yeah. Duncan Idaho. Yeah. And this this seer, Shiana, who can communicate with the worms and who is partially named after Siona, who is the one who kills Leto at the end of God Emperor of Dune, the previous <laughs> book. So there's a lot of uncertainty, but we're also very much still focused on very familiar characters. But I think this is the first time we've really done a proper deep dive on the Bene Gesserit. And I feel like this is the first time I've really mm. understood 
who the Bene Gesserit were and what like the purpose of the sisterhood is and how they make sense as a whole rather than just from like fragments that I do and kind of understand and it says how they function. So, well, I agree with you that we see more of the Bene, like this is the Bene Gesserit focused book. You know, <laughs> really the perspective has gone straight to the Bene Gesserit in this book with multiple Bene Gesserit characters. But I do think that there's a twist on the Bene Gesserit happening here, whereas Previous books viewed them as kind of like a monolith, very secretive, everyone kind of following top-down orders. This book shows numerous cases of the kind of underlings of the Bene Gesserit subverting the desires of the, the Bene Gesserit overlords. You know what I mean? Like, it's called yeah. Heretics of Dune, and to me, the Bene Gesserit are characterized by the presence of free thinking. Well, uh, yeah, so what is the meaning of this title, Heretics of Dune? So there's a passage here that says that the first time we get the word heretic used in this book, and I think it's very clear, is when Teraza and uh, Adrea are speaking to one another. Oh, no, sorry, Teraza and Teg are speaking to one another, and Teraza comments, a wise woman, but another heretic. That's all we seem to be breeding nowadays. A heretic? <laughs> Deg was caught, he was caught by resentment. And then Teraza explains that heretic is a private joke in the sisterhood that means that you're supposed to follow the Mother Superior's orders with absolute devotion. And we do, she says, except when we disagree. So there is this sort of privilege of like, you should follow, you should follow. But in certain cases, it's essential when people break away. And the first person that comes to mind to me as a heretic in this book is Adraid, because she seems to be able to make calls on the ground, such as making the alliance with the Benetelelax, that didn't Hmm. seem to be in Taraz's original orders, the Mother Superior's original orders. Another heretic I can think of probably from the distant past would be Jessica, who, in her heresy, (laughs) in going against the Benetelelax's orders, ended up creating Muad'Dib, the Kwisatz Haderach, and ultimately Leto, the tyrant, the god emperor. Yeah. Um, So... These heresies have kind of defined the sisterhood in a way. So yeah, it's kind of a curious thing where you say they prize free thinking, but they also very much like give orders that should be obeyed in all circumstances. Well, I, I just want to pick up on one thing you said and how that their heresies define the sisterhood. Those heresies are not their standard operating procedure. They yeah. like what defines <laughs> them is the the outlier cases that end up changing everything. The things that are predicted, they're the moments of free will. So like yeah. if you think of the characterization of the Bene Gesserit during God Emperor of Dune, they're just like syncophants, right? Like yeah. they, they spend their whole time groveling to the, the God Emperor. They don't know if they're going to live, if their order is going to live or die. They're playing petty power games, you know, trying to get on Leto's good side to, to get just a little bit more spice allowance that year. I agree with you. I agree with you 100%, but those are the exceptions to the rule rather than the rule. Right, but I guess what I would be saying is that they're the border is defined by these sort of crucial exceptions that they make. Yeah. I think also it seems like they spend the whole of this book, the, the sisterhood, trying to ultimately get out of the shadow of the golden path of later. Yeah, they're, they're trying to do two things. It's interesting, too, because they were, like you said, groveling to Leto and they were going to become extinct because they needed that spice. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to have their visions and they might have gone under. But now they're also in danger of going under. They're trying to escape the golden path, but they're also in danger of being exterminated by these honored matres. But this time they're taking it on themselves to do something about it. I feel like last time they were disempowered, kind of like the museum Fremen. They were almost too decadent. They were just waiting for someone to give them something. Now they have to, they're doing something. They're fighting back, I think. Well, I remember in God Emperor that they, it was said that like the Bene Gesserit, just like everyone else, were, were beset with suck mentality, right? They had marketplace yeah. souls. And I think the key scene for this is when Adraid and stumbles upon the hidden, extra hidden spice reserve of Leto in C.H. Tabor, which had already been mined by everyone for thousands of years, but they, Odraid in particular, as a heretic in a way, managed to find the secret lair of Leto and his his horde of melange. But it's interesting that when she goes there, what she gets is, you see that she's not got that suck mentality anymore because she doesn't get there and feel ecstatic about this extra spice like sure that's great but the real value of what's there are these ancient messages that have been passed down almost directly to them from later the words that she stumbles upon in this cave are a reverend mother will read my words speaking of Adred, a heretic among the benedictors of order but also very close to Taraza, the current mother superior Daran's heart and she's in a way the would-be mother superior of the sisterhood, and then she does become that at the end of the book. She's a really important reverend mother, so say she's a heretic, she's still very much part of the order, but she has her own mind, and she is able to sort of call audibles, as it were, 
for the good of the sisterhood. And later says in this ancient script on the walls, I bequeath to you, the Bene Gesserit, my fear and loneliness. To you I give the certainty that the body and soul of the Bene Gesserit will meet the same fates all of the bodies and all other souls. What is survival if you do not survive? Ho, ask the Bene Gesserit what if you no longer hear the music of life? Memories are not enough unless they call you to noble purpose. Why did your sisterhood not build the golden path? You knew the necessity. Your failure condemned me, the god-emperor, to millennia of personal despair. My words are your past. My questions are simple. With whom do you ally? With the self-idolaters of Talax? With my fish-speaker bureaucracy? With the cosmos-wandering guild? With the Harkonnen blood sacrifices? With the dogmatic stink? of your own creation. How will you meet your end, as no more than a secret society? And this shocks Adraid, sort of, I would say, the, the preeminent heretic of Dune in this book. This, I think, in particular, this idea of like the, the dogmatic stink of their own creation. That some, some degree of internal heresy is required if they're going to get out from that dogmatic stink. And it's also interesting, this, this the connection here between the golden path. It seems like they're trying to both get out from under the shadow of Leto and his golden path and their dependence on Melange and his his worms, but also, in a way, they kind of continue the golden path. And in God Emperor of Dune, Leto always said that the Bene Gesserit were by far the closest to him in terms of their intention and their overall methods and purpose. Yeah. So how I don't know, how, how are we supposed to understand this this continuity between God Emperor and heretics, between Leto and now the Sisterhood? taking on that mantle of the golden path? It's a good question. I'm not sure if the sisterhood fully understands the golden path. I think they have a outsider looking in perspective on what Leto was doing and what Leto was trying to do. So to recap, what do we think Leto was trying to do again? Because I always find it difficult to really pin down. Yeah, yeah, that's a good that's a good question. So what was Leto trying to do? We summed this up really well in the last episode, I thought. And I'm trying to pull from my memory, but basically what he had done was reduced all of the kind of galactic empire, I guess you would call it, to a total standstill in terms of like economics, travel, movement, art. Basically, everything was just frozen into a kind of idyllic landscape. People seemed to have enough to eat. People seemed to be living in rural villages with abundance and security and safety, but no one could leave planet. No one could travel. And no one then, there, there could really be no heresy. If you sinned against the god emperor, you were killed by the fish speakers. So yeah. he created a kind of... He demanded tight, absolute obedience, right? Absolute you obedience. You obey your emperor. But then he created the conditions for that to sabotage itself. He, he yeah. created the conditions to undo it for its own undoing. Now, what for what he calls the golden path so that humanity could expand, diversify, mm. grow. Frank Herbert... Think, oh yeah, go on, Bob. Well, I think a big part of the reason it needs to grow is what he feared when I believe called hydraulic despotism, which is yeah. a total dependence on any one substance or any one condition. And so he forced everyone into that standstill as a lesson. It wasn't to create conditions except for learning a lesson that we have to expand other and diversify. Otherwise, we will reach a standstill, become dependent on spice. And that's why he was always threatening, say, I will destroy all of the spice and we will all go extinct to teach everyone that if we all become dependent on the same thing, we will be totally eradicated. So I think the golden path is mysterious, but I think it's avoiding a threat that is out there growing. I don't know at all what that might be, but there's some kind of threat, I think, lurking out in the darkness that could come and sweep away all of history all of human history. I think the threat is internal in, in two separate ways. One way in which it's internal is Frank constantly compares politics to ecosystems. So hydraulic despotism, right? So let's say you have, let's say humanity is a kind of reptile around a pond. The entire reptile ecosystem is based around this pond. And humanity has kind of got itself at a standstill in terms of like, it's the dominant species there, but there's one resource in which it depends on. Well, that reptile, like you said, yeah. the, the resource goes away, the species dies. So he wants them to expand, to find new niches, new places where humanity can flourish and expand the ecosystem. In this book, what you get are people who are not dependent on the spice. The honor matres, now they're addicted to a different drug. We will talk about the honor matres later, but the honor matres have no dependency on the spice. 
Now, the other people, the Tleilaxu, yeah. have managed to start creating their own spice. So they're not dependent upon Arrakis. They can, they can spice it up wherever they want. So the other internal threat, I would say, is what okay. he was talking about with Ix, those of machines. Uh, he had these visions of hunter-seekers, you know, hunting people, people hiding out in caves. He viewed the kind of technological mindset as eventually being the undoing of humanity. Yeah. So mm -hmm. to me, those are two internal threats sure. rather than something external coming within. So I, I think it's interesting, Zach, you mentioned the idea that maybe the, the sisterhood have misunderstood the Golden Path to some extent. But I think, I think the sisterhood equate the Golden Path with their own mission. I mean, fundamentally, the Sisterhood is is quite a simple organization. When Audrey does go down to the hidden hidden spice um, melange horde in what used to be Ch Tabor, one of the messages there refers to like a noble purpose, and she's quite flummoxed by this. Like, what is the noble purpose? Like, what does this mean? Like, the noble purpose, and then she remembers something that Teraza, the Mother Superior, says, where she says like the only noble purpose is required is the survival of the sisterhood, the body and soul of the sisterhood. So that's fundamentally what the sisterhood exists for. The sisterhood exists for the sake of its own survival. And the way they attain this is this overarching, that missionary, protective, this enormous enterprise whereby they sort of eugenically tightly control breeding over generations and generations in order to cunningly divert the forces and counter forces going on in the, the whole universe to ultimately ensure their own survival, but also in so, do, so doing, sort of ensure the, the survival of humanity. So they say that in terms of the golden path, like when Teresa is teaching Shiana, she says, I think you can sense this. The tyrant, late, later, certainly knew about it. What was his golden path, she says, but a vision of sexual forces at work recreating humankind endlessly. And that seems to be Teresa, the preeminent uh, mother superior, um, that seems to be her understanding of the golden path. As a fundamentally, the noble purpose is survival, the survival of individuals and of groups like the sisterhood, but also fundamentally of the survival of humankind itself perpetually. Do you think that's a good example of like the way that the sisterhood misunderstands the golden path? Or is it perhaps that that really is the ultimate purpose of the golden path? Like in the simplest terms, the golden path is the only way for humanity to survive. So I guess I would ask how we're going to interpret the word recreating, because, you know, it says recreating humanity endlessly. Does that mean cycles without change the persistence of humanity or does it mean recreating as in creating a new creating different humanities creating different iterations and versions of humanity because those could be two different things and i don't know what the Bene Gesserit how the Bene Gesserit lay their emphasis on Do that we word. see like the, the eugenics of the Bene Gesserit and then we see the horrible monstrous creativity of the Bene play lax like they're definitely trying to create new things but what they're creating is pretty horrifying so maybe it's going too far could go too far with Lado controlling 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 yeah. or you could go too far with creating slug pigs slags and futars let's uh, let's talk about the benny play lax a little bit because this is i kind of feel like we've not finished with oh. the sisterhood yet i feel like this is such a big part of the book so the overall design like in the final part of this book the overall design of terrazzo ultimately is she's trying to destroy arrakis or Rakus as it's called then. And they're going to basically destroy the more practical results of Leto's golden path, which is his state of the divided god, going back into the sand, re-dunifying Dune, and creating a bunch of sandworms, each of which has a pearl of his own wisdom in them. And the sisterhood, in trying to get away from, get out from under his shadow, is in a way trying to destroy most of that. However, they remain dependent on spice, therefore they use Shiana, who can speak to the worms, to take a single worm from Arrakis before it's destroyed by the Onometrus to Chapter House, their own home planet, to uh -huh. dunify Chapter House. And that's where we're going to be led to in the next book, I believe. Um, and then it, the explanation of this is, as Adrade explains to Duncan, the Mother Superior's design was aimed at the destruction of Arrakis. What she really wants was the elimination of almost all of the worms. The worms are an oracular force holding us in bondage, and those pearls of the tyrant's awareness magnified that hold. And then she says, he didn't predict so, events, he created. Now, that seems to be Audrey's insight after Teraza's passed away. But the, the later didn't predict events, he created them. So in a way, it seems like the sisterhood needs to maybe take a more active role in creating meaning and creating the conditions that are on survival rather than simply manipulating forces as they arise. That's how I kind of understood that event. So when I got to that line, I thought to myself, 
well, later have been dead for 1,500 years. How could he still have an active role in creating events? But then... The collective consciousness of the what, worms. What, well, but what are they doing? So then, but then it's like, well, what set the events of this book in motion? You have a girl who's in the sand and she can suddenly talk to the worms. You could say that she's the one who set that event in motion, but really it <laughs> is Leto still at the, the front and center. Well, I mean, it almost seems like the the worms represent sort of like the wordless, like the idea is that the language of the worms is not really a language, it's more like a dance. So when Shiana can yeah. speak to the worms, she didn't really speak to the worms, you know, she didn't have a conversation with them, she just feels the the worms, you know, she sort of has has a sense. And at the end, it ends with a kind of a joke where um, Adres shouts, hey, old worm, like, what, what's going on or whatever, like, how are you doing? And he doesn't answer, like, she didn't really expect an answer. So like, there's this idea of like the, the wordless thing that can't be put into any kind of like intelligible structure which nonetheless is 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 the ultimate driving force of the universe and i think that's kind of like what later was always trying to intimate in in the first place he was constantly emphasizing that it's this sort of only the, the thing that can't be articulated that is really a significant corner now what would that be i think if you asked the Bene, Bene Gesserit, they would say it's this sexual energy one of the fundamental things that the Bene Gesserit do is control religions and then they explain why what it means like what's the real purpose of controlling religions in the quote like we read at the start of this episode which is this idea that religions are a way to channel sexual energies either by bottling them up till they explode or in cunningly redirecting them in the way that kind of reminds me of like Freudian sublimation or something of like directing them towards a greater purpose right you take the erotic love human beings have for one another for the sake of their survival and you project it towards a higher ideal right there's something else that mankind needs in addition to mere survival so yeah. that's kind of like what the what the sisterhood are really doing by controlling religions this is their main objective like i feel like this book where it became clear to me where it's like, oh the missionary of prophetic fever is really a whole program which is just the, the ultimate survival of the sisterhood not everything else that they do controlling religions controlling birth are fundamentally for their own survival i think it's interesting the way like the bene Gesserit are contrasted with the honored matras who the mother superior has a particular hatred of like, the amount of times she just calls them horse without even pr- provocation yeah like every time the honored matrix get mentioned taraz is like oh them horse which is which is kind <laughs> of funny but it's like why is she feeling so personal about this and then she explains to shiana like well why, why is the problem with the the horse which is the problem is well they use this sexual force which the bene Gesserit also use but they don't use this sexual force for, you know, recreation of the species, right? They don't think about the species. So it's like sexual force <laughs> without any outcome. And that's what makes them whores as opposed to mothers, right? They don't, they don't give any consideration for what she comes She also says off. it will be their, their undoing, right? Yes. So it's kind of naked wielding of power. Exactly. And if, if there's any one of the little tidbits I would pull away from all these Frank Herbert books is that he's constantly saying that power creates its own... Uh, resistance right and it follows from evolutionary logic as well like you have prescience then all of a sudden you get a siona that comes along who can uh, be invisible to prescience right or you you have these worms and all of a sudden you have somebody who can speak to the worms control the worms and i think the point that the bene Gesserit made i think is a very wise point as you mentioned is just this idea that uh, many of these other groups destroy themselves by trying to use force directly to rule you can't do that yeah. the honor metrists try and use sexual force but then you get a duncan idaho who can use that so, against so. them then they get destroyed as happens in this book. Or the Tleilaxu, they think they can control directly, but again, they fail. They become vulnerable. Wolf is vulnerable to the other matrix. So I think the point is you can never use force directly, and that completely explains why Bene Gesserit are always just sort of look, observing the way force is moving at that time. They read the currents at that moment and say, we're yeah. going to ally ourselves always with the strongest group. But we're not going to rule the direct the power ourselves. We're going to direct the breeding, but fundamentally they're just harnessing other people's force because they know that if you try and use force directly yourself, there'll be a counter force, you'll get destroyed. So that seems to be the great teasing she's trying to pass on to Shiana, and that sort of really ties the sisterhood into like, you can completely understand the sisterhood in that way, I think. But think about, think about what we're talking about when we talk about building resistances, right? So the honor matres are using sexuality as a force directly. The Bene Gesserit rely upon the kind of unthinking expenditure of sexual energy yeah. in order for their entire plans to to work. Yes. Right? They, they rely on people falling in love, making babies, et cetera, et cetera, But et cetera. they themselves cannot um, fall in love. Yes. But with the honor matres, if, you're, if you are using sexuality 
as naked force, yeah. then what you do is you, you create a people who are resistant yes. to sexuality. And those are people that the Bene Gesserit fundamentally cannot control. This isn't explicated in the book, but I think I, I see the oh, kind right. of... Oh, right. Yeah, I see your point. Yeah. You know, like it, the, the, it's, it's creating the undoing of the, the Bene Gesserit's grip. Yes. So to speak. Yeah. And that's what ultimately like they're doing, they're trying to do directly what the religion did covertly. Yeah. And the narrator explicitly connects Leto's Sinoch, you know. Yes, as from, like now a sexual. From the previous book. Yeah. yeah. He said they had turned Sinoch into like the sexual act yeah. itself. They vulgarized it by making it too explicit and too visible in a way. Yeah. Because really, you need yeah. to shroud things in a certain mystery and religion, and then people will never lose that fundamental impulse that the Bene Gesserit ultimately rely on, and indeed humankind relies on. I think, again, yeah. that also makes sense in terms of like technology. Well, technology, if you can just create something in a tank, it's going to ultimately affect the vitality of mortal, natural beings. Tim, I think another thing that's wrong, or that the Bene Gesserit doesn't like about them, is that when they use that power too directly, it's kind of like withholding because they just have to control everyone by using their power. They're not creating anything like you said. So evolutionarily, they will just consume themselves because they consume. Yeah. If it's an, like that frog or whatever, that animal in the wilderness, it consumes all of its prey and then it's out of prey and it will too go extinct. Uh. I think Odraid is really interesting because we see multiple times where she disobeyed, like the lady Jessica, who disobeyed and loved Odraid at the beginning says, no, I think there's no problem in loving. And she she argues with Teraza. Then she talks about it again in the middle. And I think in the end, Duncan Idaho accuses her of being unable to love. He says, no, no Reverend Mother can love. No Benny Jesser can love. She says, I only feel what I feel. So I think she's going to be quite a bit different than pre... She'll be a heretic, like you've said, to be quite a bit different as a Benny Jesser. Well, that's leader. one of her aggressive aspects as well, isn't it? It's the first one mentioned and the last one mentioned. Yeah. Hmm. And I do th I, I think, like, I think it's true. Like, I think the sisterhood are, like, the key to this book in a way because the other groups in this book, to me, offer, like, sort of, like, opposites, almost, mm -hmm. of the Benedict Lightsabers, or at least, like, dark reflections. Foils. You know I mean? like, foils, in a way, like, foils. So the Onometras have yeah. very similar abilities to the Benedict in terms of, like, procreation. But they vulgarize it by purely emphasizing the sexual act itself as a means of control <laughs> and not the output of that sexual act. What before we talk about the play like too, are the honored mantras heretics? Would they fall into the same category as or maybe like a further extension of the hereticization within the Bene Gesserit order? They're so different and I don't know like exactly I think that's rumored that they're a mix of Bene Gesserit and fish speakers. But they've never been able to be followers, or I don't. I guess I don't know what's happened to them. Well, they do say that some Bene Gesserit did go out into the scattering, so it's entirely possible that they ended up becoming the honored matrons. That's what um, they think and is then likely. The fish speakers have yeah. also gone out and become yeah. an insignificant force. It's possible that they are a combination of the two, right? Well, someone says it's likely. I, I mean, I think it's pretty yeah. explicit that they are former yeah. Bene Gesserit people. So, in a way, yeah, I think you're right. They are extreme heretics, maybe ex heretics from without rather than heretics from within, <laughs> perhaps. I just love that they replaced the spice. You know what? Actually, maybe I shouldn't say this because I don't think this was revealed in this book, but they replaced the spice with a kind of like amphetamine stimulant. Oh, yeah, we we don't know. Yeah. Well, all, all we get is that her eyes have orange flecks and turn completely orange, which to me started yes. to seem like the the navigators, like the... Uh, because they're in those those tanks full of melange turning orange. Yeah. So I had a suspicion it had to some similarity, but yeah, I don't know. Don't know yet. I love the, the foil presented because what, what you have is kind of like, like we we know the Bene Gesserit from mm. five other books and now we're presented with the evil twin yes. of the Bene Gesserit. I think there's another evil twin in here. I think the other evil twin going on here is the Axlothal tanks, which is a massive revelation. Uh, I don't know if we're ready to reveal this, this just about yet, but these axolotl tanks, which have been producing the Golas, all of these Duncans, thinking, oh, it's just an axolotl tank. Well, the Bene Gesserit are starting to discover what these axolotl tanks really are like. They say that whenever they speak about them to the Tlalaxu, it's like they're speaking about, you know, uh, some kind of incestuous event between family members or something like that. It's a hush-hush thing. They don't talk about the axolotl tanks. And what's really happening is... We don't talk about Bruno. Exactly. I, I don't know what that means, but yes. <laughs> the idea is that, like, 
Well, they say that well, we, we never see a Tlaxu female. Where are these Tlaxu females? And um, well, Tlaxu females are just basically hooked up to a bunch of wires and they're just basically sheer gross bulbing material, pure reproductive matter, no better than a petri dish essentially with a body hooked up to wires and everything. And those give birth to these these golas. And obviously it has to be such a tightly controlled process where, you know, they're essentially hooked up to tanks, they're dehumanized entirely and that women become purely a reproductive organ for the sake of the men in that society. And that's what these Alahax fossil tanks are. And the Bene Gesserit here make an alliance with the Bene Tlaxu because in a way they have many shared interests. But it's interesting that one of the first things they say is like, we will never be an Aflotl tank for you. I think this is a very yes. sore point for the Bene Gesserit because obviously the Bene Gesserit yes. sleeping with quite a number of people. Like, they all have like 20 children. And the whole point is they yes. use their sexual prowess um, to further the human race and to, to cultivate you know, genetic qualities which are going to help with the mission area perceiver with the, the survival of the sisterhood. But I feel like they maybe don't want to think of themselves as purely birthing things like the Aflotl tanks, right? The Aflotl tanks come yeah. as like a, like a vulgarization of the Bene Gesserit in one aspect. I feel like the Onimatrids mm. are a vulgarization of the Bene Gesserit in another aspect, but they're all sort of like fragmentary from that. Like the, the closest thing to the whole process of the Golden Path is still the Bene Gesserit. Yeah. So, so like with, with, X, you have pure techno technologization. Mm. They will they will create anything for the sake of solving any problem, even if it's their own undoing. Benning Jesuit, they are they are technologizing desire. Mm -hmm. Eros. Yes. They are they are I don't think technologizing is the right way to see it, but they're certainly, you know, harnessing it maybe as some non technological way of saying that. They are stripping love from its romanticism and turning it into a tool for the accomplishment of goals, aims, <laughs> and ends. Yeah. And that's right, what right, I mean right, by yeah. technologization. Making uh, an end until means. Uh, yes. And the Tleilaxu, what they're doing is they're viewing life itself as the matter, the clay in which they can <laughs> mold towards right. their ends. So you see this first in like, uh, I don't even know where you see this first. I guess you could say you, we see this first with well, Duncan. Face I know. Well, that face faces like yeah, clay. Sure. So they've created an entire <laughs> subspecies <laughs> of themselves that are totally sexless. They're described as mules. And I, I take that to mean not only that they are unable to reproduce, but also that they are entirely dependent upon the orders of the Tleilaxu masters in order, you know, they have no will of their own. I think in the previous book, they're described uh -huh. as hive creatures, right? Yeah. So they're like the Tleilaxu ants, where there's just a few people who really are in control. But then, so they're creating chair dogs. They're creating slings. But they're also turning all of their women into basically just womb machines. Like, like redu they reduce the entirety of an organic being into just mm -hmm. one function and then just make it that function. I think they're the most interesting group in all of Dune, especially because Frank has dropped all of these little hints throughout all of the other books to finally lead to this realization. That this is what's going on. And then it turns out they're also, what do you describe them as? So they're basically the same religion as the Fremen. Yeah. They're, they're Zen Sunni. Well, yeah, the, the great belief. So, but they're also kind of like, their religion seems like a synthesis of a bunch of things. Mm -hmm. And I'll be honest with you, I feel like the the, the religiousness of the Tlaxo masters, like, I'm going to probably be like, I, I, I feel like I need more expansion on like what makes them sort of like your, your favorite part of these books. Because, even with these revelations now, I find it hard to think of them any of them as, as anything other than the absolute pathetic race of creatures. I mean, Wath yeah. is an absolutely pathetic individual. The Thursday masters, this whole like, oh, the great God, da, da, da. It's, it's, it's undignified. It's not becoming of a master of anything. So I yeah. feel like, you know, what... what... Yeah, I, I, they, they don't have to be heroic to be the most interesting people. You know, if I want to talk about heroism, I'd be like, oh yeah, that that God Ember, what a, what a hero, real impressive thing. But I think it's not the... But the, I feel like their goals are so vulgar, though, comparatively, yeah. somehow. Yeah, and Frank Frank right, Frank wrote them to critique their goals. Their their goals are not admirable, but you can still look around us and still see a Benny Tleilax mm. mindset. You, know, you talked about a soup mm. mindset earlier. I got a link to a place that will create clones of my yeah. dog, so that for the rest of my life, I can have my <laughs> favorite dog, a new one delivered on a platter, grown in a vat. You know, every 10 years, just send a new one in. You know what? I'll have the old dog as it's nearing the end of her lifespan. I'll have her raise the new dog as a puppy. You know, just, you know, like, 
the, the, there's a binning clay laxization of culture that we that we can point to in our right. own lives, and by creating this kind of monstrous example of it, taken to its absolute furthest extremes, where they just they don't even have women anymore; they just have wombs hooked up yeah. to wires. What I'm interested in, like, what makes the Tlaxi fundamentally different from the X? Like, is it just the, the sort of like the fact that the X sort of like maintained the distinction between machine and non-machine in a way that fundamentally doesn't really like fundamentally change our orientation to kind of like ourselves? And there's something about the sisterhood whereby they basically mean they're just they're just really really good at what we do. They do deliberately what we all do naturally, right? And there's a certain yeah. nobility to that. There's an art. Yeah, they, what they do is not a science; it's an art. Whereas the Talaxu are just yep. these, these, I find them deeply, I mean, I find them deeply, deeply offensive. I think, I know that's the point, but there's just something about Talaxu that I just deeply hate. I think that maybe that's the point. So it's like not that clear cut if you, in broad strokes, but if you look at what Ix creates, you can see that they're a very different kind of people. Ix is like a Silicon yeah. Valley type. What they create is spyglasses. They create things that allow the God Emperor to listen in you know, from miles and miles away. When they're torturing Miles Tang, one of my favorite so, scenes, they're looking through a an eye on a tablet, right? So so Ix are creating <laughs> webcams, basically. Like, all the technology and computers and stuff that we're familiar with today, that's a kind of Ix thing. Ix would be writing chat yeah, GPT yeah. if it wasn't outlawed in the Valerian yeah. Jihad. And even then, they, they're probably still writing chat GPT because... They don't okay. care. Play like Sue, it's instead of viewing zeros and ones as the canvas of their creation, they they view genetics, DNA as their <laughs> code that they manipulate. Uh, so you think we're we're more t- do you think the Tlaxu or the Ixians are a better reflection of us right now as a as a as a culture? Because a, a lot of the things you said there that I think of like as modern culture of like cynical and Silicon Valley chat GPT, that's also Ixian stuff, but you seem to have the position that the Tleilaxu are the the real foreigners. Is that sort of like uh, you just see that in the future or I, I just think that you can read a critique of Silicon Valley anywhere. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that's not special. But but to see someone create an entire culture taking to the extremes of, you know, cloning I mean, it's not like it's not like GMO products are new or unfamiliar. They're very yeah. normalized today. Just not with human uh, beings, house pets, just yet. <laughs> just not with house pets, just yet. But I mean, that's an easy sell for people who just lost a dog. Like, oh, we can recreate your exact dog. But it's also not an emotionally driven decision because you have to decide while the dog is still alive, right? You have to say, I am <laughs> going to harvest the stem cells of this dog. While it's still alive, because I anticipate a time in the future when I will be mm. bereaved and want a new one. Uh, so so I, I view this as like, all of these people are, are they striving towards power or immortality? What, what are we working towards mm. here? And for the Bene Gesserit, they were trying to create an all-powerful being. They've given up on that after God Emperor of Doom, but they were trying to create a kind of person who could see everything, be everywhere, know everything. For the Tleilaxu, they've ran at immortality in a different direction by cloning themselves. So, like, Waf has lived hundreds, if not mm-hmm. thousands of lives as just a clone who just keeps popping out every time he dies. I think just Waf is such a pathetic in- individual. Like, just what is Waf? What's the, what is Waf? Just a little elf. He's Waf. He's Ugh. my guy. Just pathetic, there's, puny, cowardly, there's a, amoral. Oh. Just, just a, just an absolute. Well, that was the other thing, too. They they say they've cultivated a pathetic face, a pathetic exterior to show the rest of the world, because you know that they could modify themselves to look like, you know, Waff the Golden God, but instead they're three or four feet tall. Very like, and they have sharp, pointy teeth. They have. You know, squinting dark eyes. I, you know, I, I don't know. They, they I feel look like, like none of that would be as offensive. They weren't so stupid, though. Like just the lack of intelligence well, is yeah. actually like confuses me. I want to mention the the noble way. We have talked about that with the the new Benny Gesserit going forward. The noble way, in comparison with the end that the Benny Je- the Benny Tleilax might be nearing, and the end the Ixians might be nearing, because the end the Ixians might be nearing or causing 
has already happened, that the Butlerian Jihad stopped it, and the Ixians, if they're let to do whatever they want, they would end up having another machine takeover, the end of humanity. And yeah. I think there's something interesting that the Bene Gesserits are suspecting what Waff is doing and what the Bene Thelaks are doing, with face dancers becoming so good at imitating other people that they forget that they ever were yes. face dancers. And there's an interesting yeah. thing where they say they're getting, they're trying, they're deliberately trying to improve their face dancers so much that even the Tleilax masters can't recognize them. And the implication there is these face dancers could take over the masters. So there's going to be a revolution in the Benny Tleilax, but it's a revolution of fake copies of people who don't know that they're copies. So it's like all Golas who never will find out that they're Golas. Which is horrifying, I guess, in a way, but it seems like a a end that does not actually destroy humanity, where the Ixians would destroy humanity for machines. It's like a fun twist on the body yeah, snatcher yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. story, you know? But instead of the body snatcher coming in and replacing you to do nefarious things, they've just body snatched you and they're just going to live your life exactly how you would have <laughs> yeah, lived yeah. it before. <laughs> no and so that knows that, the difference. Uh, they don't and even they know, don't and that's even the opposite. I mean, that literally happened in this book yeah. with Twerk, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And but it's like a really creative twist on on the the scary and story. Yeah. Of the creativity. Body Speaking of creativity, that is what Leto was hoping for and feeling so depressed at not experiencing anymore for thousands of years is no creativity. The end of the Benny Tleilax, no, if they succeed, is the end of creativity. Whereas the Ixians are always creating something new, creating something new, creating something new. But that kills humanity. Yeah. I'm wondering, is the noble way a combination of continuing real human procreation and creativity? So by the noble way, do you equate that with the golden path? I think it's pretty similar. But again, they are trying to duck under the whatever the effects or the control of the golden path on them. So the Bene Gesserit can create something new again. I think we have an echo of Siona killing Leto because now she's the first one who can't be detected by prescience. You know, so she's able to kill Leto, who has prescience. And now we have Shiana. No, sorry. Shiana, Shiana. but I'm thinking of yeah. Odrade. Odrade is trying to duck under the oh. golden path. So Siona escaped prescience. Now Odrade has escaped the golden path hey. and is fighting whatever the noble way is. But it's very potentially similar. I don't know. I mean, this reminds me of what you were saying, Zach, about like, you know, uh, what was it? The, the golden path in the sisterhood's understanding and also kind of, in my view, the missionary productiva is this idea of recreating humankind endlessly. And you said, well, what do you mean by recreating? I think, well, in the Tleilaxia saying that we literally just mean regurgitating Regurgi human yeah. endlessly, which is repugnant and, and just pointless. The Ixians are going to essentially sterilize life to the point where there is no vitality of, of humankind to begin with because it's going to get wiped out by massive computers. But then there's this, again, this idea of like Leto always saying that the Bene Gesserit are closest to his own intentions. And I feel like both of them are ultimately trying to recreate humans endlessly, but also in a way like cause constant innovation and adaptation in the human being itself, not through the uh -huh. activities of the arts or the sciences of the human beings. Yeah. And so ultimately to maintain the vitality of the human race. And that seems to be the end of the Bene Gesserit, just as it was the end of Leto. Mm-hmm. Uh -huh. I think that's why Odrade is so different from Taraza, who eventually dies. Odrade is a heretic because she's trying to enjoy things, whereas the Ixians cannot enjoy things, neither can the honored Matres. Mm. They have no enjoyment at all. And I think that's why I love Teg. I want to talk about him later, but I love the uh, scene. Yeah, we've got to talk about Teg. I want to talk about his, Teg. He's my biggest... favorite Dune character. And like, I know! Full stop. Me too. I love Mars Teg. But yeah. I love that okay. scene. I knew I was like, oh my God, this is the guy... I thought it was great. And then when he smiles at the honored Matre and realizes that is the biggest insult he can give her, because this is, it's yeah. a smile that represents that I love life and experience and that they can yeah. never have that. And I think Odrade is different from, even though the, the Benny Jesserts, their intention is to have this noble way, this kind of creative procreation, the honored, the Reverend Mothers themselves have lost that joy kind of, or as individuals, they don't yeah. have love, but Odrade now can. And I think Taraza yeah. is starting to fear she's not sleeping anymore. 
and she's starting to worry that she doesn't have the joy of music or the joy of different things. And I think Odrade is a really significant, not just in purpose heretical, but there's something about her individual life which will change the entire order. I kind of think the common the common thread here is basically it seems to be the case that if you want to maintain human life in a meaningful sense, that is to say, mm. human beings oriented towards eudaimonia, um, mm-hmm. then ultimately you need to accept unpredictability and danger. Mm-hmm. And I think what that's what is so repugnant mm-hmm. and pathetic, but also deeply powerful about the whole technological attitude, which is like we're going to preserve ourselves forever, we're going to be safe forever, we're going to preserve ourselves forever. Right, great, but for what? What was? For what's the point? Why bother? Right, mm-hmm. if you don't have that love of life. If you don't have that unpredictability that keeps life interesting, then might as well sack it off. And this whole Tilaxa attitude of like, we're just going to recreate human beings endlessly. It's all right, great, but what are the stakes anymore? Right, what, what are we living for anymore? So I feel I feel like to me, I kind of think Frank is direct, deliberately directing our sympathies with this way. It's like, as much as the Bear Jezera and Leto do, do horrible things, they're doing it in the interest of sort of human beings living vital and meaningful lives. Uh-huh. And I think maybe what he's trying to show us is that these other alternatives taken to their natural inclusion, either the sort of genetic engineering route or the technological perfection route, both ultimately going to destroy the very thing that they're ultimately beginning and setting out to preserve, which is life. And any life in the conditions that yeah. they will ultimately leave us in is not worth living. So, you know, a, a life worth living maybe is, is the uh, ultimate end of human beings, a human race living lives worth living. Mm. That's the ultimate goal. Do you think, do you think I should follow up the series by reading the Unabomber because I feel like this is like I feel like we're not we're not far away. I just read the other day because I I started going down this Google hole of uh, the Unabomber's favorite book in the world was Jacques oh, Ellul's yeah. The Technological yeah. Society, and like it was his Bible. He 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 slept with a copy under his mm-hmm. pillow, kind of a thing. And I can't help but feel like Frank Herbert is on that well, same. So the, path. What you said the, the Unabomber would um, be essentially I've. It, I don't really know much about the Unabomber. Was he anti-technology? Because I understood the Unabomber to be like a technologist in the sense that he made bonds. And he was a mathematician. Which to me is like the ultimate like non-human uh, machine. No, no. He lived in a cabin in the woods and he was very anti, anti-technology, anti-society. And he wrote a manifesto and called attention to his manifesto by mailing out bombs yeah. to different people. And ended up getting his manifesto published in like the Washington Post or something like that, which is crazy <laughs> to me. But... Anyway, sorry, this is probably a big, big diversion to a different direction. But I, I do feel like there is a kind of like tradition that Frank Herbert is is working within here. You know what I mean? And also, I think the thing is, another thing is like that's critical to me is like, how are you going to create a virtuous society when technology can do everything for you and there are no stakes, you can just recreate yourself with the, all your old memories intact? Where's the, where's, the, where's the virtue in that? There's no virtue in that whatsoever. To have virtue, you need difficulty and unpredictability and mortality. Without mm-hmm. those things, you can't really have any true virtue or even morality. And and look at Duncan Idaho in this book. In the previous book, they brought him back for the thousandth time, but he's an old model. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. slow. He can't he can't adapt to this new society. When they bring him back this time, yeah. he's a superhuman who's better yeah. than everyone else, and he doesn't even have to try. I mean, he spends all of his time practicing and working yeah. out. And, it's like a Dragon Ball Z uh, character. Yada, yada, yada. But, like, he, yeah, he, he wakes up fundamentally better than most of the people mm-hmm. in this universe. Yes. You know, we should, we should talk about the people of this universe. <laughs> 3,500 years ago, or I guess that would be 5,000 years ago, Dune 1, you have people segmented into different classes. You have doctors, you have soldiers, you have politicians, envoy, you know, whatever. By God Emperor's time, you have basically peasants. They're living in an agrarian society. Everyone is, you know, hunting, yeah. fishing, blah, 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 small cities, rural areas. In this book, you have cities and you have wealth. You have the hyper wealthy who have converted the Harkonnen Palace. Well, into I feel a like we're talking. You have the hyper wealthy. And then you have these scenes of what, I forget what he calls them, the unfortunate, the people of the gutter, you know? Like, uh-huh. like they spend time walking through the streets, and I believe it was Odrade looks at them and feels hatred. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like there's, there's scenes of kind of like 
opium den like like that that drug that they introduced in the second book there's now just people addicted to it yeah. all over the place yeah isamuda yeah it's just like a very different world we've kind of transported from a kind of fantasy oh yeah samuda uh, rural and environmental utopianism to a kind of almost cyberpunk yes. dystopianism people who are half robot because they were ruined yeah. at war you know like yeah definitely and you know these human beings yeah, that I are kind of left that kind of like have a empatheticness to them right like Lucilla calls them like gutter people and a gutter planet and Miles Ted is even man. tempted at yeah. times to think of them as no more than muck and he has to resist this this instinct to call them muck yeah. because he's a well because he's a virtuous human being that's why and that's why Miles Tag is a beloved character and possibly our segue into discussing Miles Tag in <laughs> detail. What you have is a war hero who is beloved by all of the people. Everywhere he goes, they're like, oh, I fought with you at this war. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I, I don't recognize you. And they're like, yeah. don't worry. Yeah. Don't worry. We recognize you. He's a he's a populist celebrity. Yeah. You know? Your and money's no good here. the people. And he is truly a foil to someone like the Honored Matres. The Honored Matres say, we need someone who can control the mm. muck. And you will be, we will control you and you will control the muck. But he doesn't view them as muck. They're, they're, he's they're a humanist. His people. He's a humanist. Mm -hmm. Miles Tagg. Who is, I love those who is scenes. the previous Atreides mm. noble guy from the last book? Who's the previous Atreides what? The, the, the number two to uh, the God Emperor. Oh, Maneo? Maneo. Oh, yeah. He's like Maneo and Leto combined. Yeah, in a way, yeah. Oh, yeah. I feel like. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, he's he's clearly a descendant of Maneo, but like in a yeah. much different context. Oh, you know I mean, I mean? they're both descendants of the trade. He looks just right, like Leto the first, too. So I feel like sure. what we're really yeah. talking yeah. about here is yeah. like, yeah. Miles Tech remains... Maybe the the purest Atreides in this book. Also, though, Adraid, this yeah. sort of one of the sort of heretics, you know, these two main mm. reverend mothers in this book, who we've talked about quite a lot already in this episode. She and also Adraid, Atreides, daughter. Is supposed to sound similar. They're essentially very similar names. So Ad yeah. Adraid and Miles Tech, yeah. arguably the two most unproblematically like, heroic characters in this book, are both descended from Atreides. Yeah. Right. This this line remains vital. Yeah, and father and daughter yes. too. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I guess what we have here is maybe I, just want to mention, do, I don't I love, know. Like, yeah. Do we think for Frank that the Atreides remain the sort of paragon of what, what a human being should strive to be? Like, should we all try and be Atreides? You know, Atreides, the people who govern for the sake of the governed, who embody all these classical virtues and who care about justice. It, are we supposed to just regard? Are we should, should we all be Atreides basically in Frank's view? Yeah, I I, I don't um, feel like Frank gives us like anecdotes of Atreides goodness from which we could model our own behavior. You know what I mean? Like there's no, it's always something that's res resisting that's the current here. flow of the times. So even in the, even in the bodies of like mm. Paul Modib, it was his Atreides aspect contradict, you know, in at war with in internal contradiction with, you know, his prescience and the Fremen ways of life. Yeah. His and faith, similarly yeah. with Leto, it was always this, yeah. like, this sort of aspect of him, the Atreides aspects of him that kept him vulnerable and kept him like caring about humankind. In a way, but it was still, you know, a sort of bulwark against just all these other forces in the universe, which are very much anti-Atreides. And I think that maybe yeah. it was so sympathetic. So, so about I guess them. I would say that they are the sympathetic character, but I don't view these books as a handbook on how no, to no, be no, an no, 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 no. They're not a handbook I mean? on how to be Atreides, but I feel like I guess what I mean is, are we supposed to think? Are we supposed to be Atreides in a world of Tlaxx and Ixians? Right, so are we supposed to be that resistant force of okay. human goodness and virtue? Because they are continually again uh, yeah. and again cropping up as the saviors in this book. In this case, Odraid and, and Miles Teg, but I think throughout them it's the Atreides aspect of people which say ultimately saves mankind. And, well, the the people who save mankind, but also the emergent point of various human evolutions, right? So like... All the all the tit for tat that we've seen over the various other books of human development continues in this book, like Miles Tag developing the ability to see no ships by the end of it. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah, because he go he undergoes his own agony, analogous to the spice agony, right? Out of the hand, ironically, out of the hands of the Ixians and the uh, and, and the Honored Matrix. 
So to set the stage, they've captured him. You have a kind of these the you have a kind of torture master, you know. He, he has these really nice descriptions of <laughs> the the kind of people who populate torture dungeons, including their absolute banality of <laughs> of their evil. And what they're doing is they're attaching a probe to his head that tries to I guess you would say like override his sensory abilities. So in order to access his memories. And the way it does is by causing him to believe that he's smelling things or seeing things or hearing things. And once it can do that, once it can control his sensory input, then it really has control over his body. And from there, we can extract all the information they need from him. They can create an exact physiological replica of him, but they can't access his actual thoughts. But the idea is that all thoughts ultimately will lead to action. And those actions or those reactions are what they can sort of map as yeah. of that then use to understand to a great deal anything that he could have told them with the words anyway. And it was very Proustian, right? So they're, they're getting him smells. And what do these smells do? They send him on a trip through his memories yeah. from which they can read his memories from a computer screen and kind of extract this information. But what it yes. does for him is the equivalent of the spice agony that Paul and everyone else goes through. So Miles Tig wakes up and finds that he has these new abilities, which we haven't seen in the Dune universe, which is basically his consciousness speeds up. His reaction time, his experience of time, and his, the speed at which he can move his body. I mean, you know what? I was thinking about this, actually, this whole scene yesterday. So what he gets is this, what do they call it? A second sense? Doubled vision, often. Double vision, that's the one. So he gets yeah. this double vision. So I think, well, I was thinking about this yesterday in terms of like, I was out hiking yesterday, the 26k hike, eight hours. And I was thinking about like, well, how do I need to move here going over these rocks, which are kind of tricky and, you know, little valleys and, you know, marshes and all these things I have to try and like, avoid going up peaks. And I was thinking about well, what, what's my mindset going to be right now if we're going to like, we had to move quickly before it got dark, basically. So we had to move with a considerable degree of swiftness. And I was thinking, well, I can't focus too much on what's happening here in front of me. I can't focus too much on that every step in front of the other, or else I'll just be, I'll be overthinking it. But at the same time, I can't be thoughtless and just going off pure instincts. So I have to essentially like be in a state where I'm concentrating, <clears throat> or at least paying attention, <clears throat> but I'm letting my body just react. Yeah. Right? That's how I have to be. I have to be like attentive, but just fundamentally trusting land in the right way and to me that's what Teg's doing here was like he finds himself from being a mentat where everything is logically computed in his head to now having gone gone through the agony of the t-probe he now has this just instinctive knowledge of like what he needs to do he'll do things but i don't know why i'm doing this but i'm just sort of doing it this just seems to be the right way to land mm. and he'll just wipe out five, five people without even realizing what he's done and i felt like that was exactly what i was doing in a very banal and mundane sense when i was like hopping among the rocks and stuff so i was like i'm just like i'm just gonna trust that i'm doing the right way here because i know i'm concentrated i know i'm, I'm known clear-headed so I'm, I'm gonna make good decisions because of that and it worked out i didn't break my ankle so but <laughs> i feel i feel like that's what's, what's interesting is like and i think this extends to the whole dune series of like what frank does is he takes things that we already do and just blows them up to a massive proportion so one example is this you know we talked about being like the expansion point zach of like you know take the single sand dune what if it's an entire planet or prescience, you know, the ability to think forward in the way you hmm. might do when you're playing a game of chess. So if you think a few moves ahead, we'll blow that up to, you know, a massive scale. You know, the ability to think of your own memories, well, what if you can have other people's memories as well? So I feel like with this doubled vision, it's almost like the instincts that we have when we're in a sort of receptive frame of mind, a sort of attentive frame of mind, well, what if that was just a whole nother level? I think that's what Miles Tech really gets here. But also, he has the further ability to see no ships. No ships. Yeah. I wonder if it's where it comes from, too, because they've used the T-probe tons of times. This is an anomaly. He's the first person who has had this reaction. And I'm wondering, is it because he's a Mentat or because he's an Atreides? And someone describes Mentats at one point, I can't remember who, but they say you have to ride Roman, which is where you have a foot on each horse. You have two horses going. 
Because as a Mintat, oh, you yeah. have to know what your opponent is thinking and what you are thinking at the same time. Or two two logical yeah. pathways that cannot meet, you have to keep them going at the same time. And it feels like he's kind of doing that in a physical sense now. But at the mm, same time, he's, yes. he's Atreides too. And we have a long line of Atreides having different forms of prescience. And now he can yeah. see these no-ships. So, I mean, one, he's an amazing person, Miles Tegg. Two, he's an Atreides. Three, he's a Mentat. So putting the T-probe into the mix has given him something very interesting. And I'm wondering, is he going to spark a new kind of humanity too? Or is he just going to be a one-off Superman? Well, surely they would like to sort of breathe. The Bene Gesserit will have to breathe with him now that That's he's I'm you know, shown these abilities. Yeah. But it's also interesting that you mentioned, Bob, like about this Mentat as in like having, you know, the feet on two horses. It's yeah. almost like he's 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 just now even more of a mentat than he was before. Now yeah. he's pure mentat, right? Mentat. Whereas previously he was a, a guy who was a mentat. Now yeah. he is just mentat. <laughs> the platonic ideal of a mentat, right? It is interesting how in other books, Frank has usually turned the camera away from violence. But when we do have violence, it's usually one-on-one, a very kind of noble duel. Boom. A tete a tete, so to speak. <laughs> but so but with this one, what well, well, you get is mass murder, right? Uh-huh. Like you get Miles Tegg going through and crushing the necks of people. Just John licking the shit out of people. John <laughs> licking the shit out of people. He says, I can't, I can't leave this bank until I've killed all 50 people who are inside of it. And it's a very different, it's just a, it's just a different depiction of violence that I think we're used to from the series. Yeah. More graphic. There's erotica too. We get actual graphic descriptions of violence and we get real erotica in a few pages. We do. Just... We do. The best scene is probably Duncan Idaho when uh, Marbella, this <laughs> honored matrix, is trying to essentially imprint him and sort of subject him to her sexual powers. <laughs> and then he's just, he's got an answer to every single move she makes. So, Duncan, this man who's been bred over thousands of generations as a girl <laughs> to be irresistible to women. Is now uh, proven irresistible even to the most powerful women in the universe. These these other metros, which is kind yeah. of interesting, but that's quite explicit the way he's doing this as well. I read a great one star Audible review of this book that <laughs> specifically brought up that scene. <laughs> really? Why? They didn't like it. So, what what did they say about it? Can you recall? I don't remember. I just I was just laughing. To me, the funniest scene was when Lucilla and Basmali, oh, the yeah. sort of I know a, pr- one. a protege I know of which one. Um, the. The protege of uh, Miles Tag, yeah. who is basically Tag is trying to sub- help this Reverend Mother Lucilla and Duncan, the young Duncan who's in his charge, to survive an attack from. They're not really sure who, but it's probably definitely the Animatrix trying to wipe them out. You know, he he get, ends up getting lost, and that's when he gets captured for the T probe. But then Basmali manages to find Lucilla and Duncan, and then sort of they try and save them by going undercover. And they say, Lucilla, you're going to have to go undercover as a sort of. Who is it again? It's not an anonymatra, but like a, a yeah, it's an anonymatra, yeah. right? Or like not a not a high ranking one, but just like a, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyways, an escort, <laughs> an escort, basically. Yeah. Well, but then when it's like, well, in order to make this convincing, you're gonna have to actually sleep with Basmali, yeah. and then Basmali just walks through the door naked, <laughs> and this old woman is like, oh well, clearly he's already ready to go. She waved her hand as his stiffly up cocked penis. <laughs> I will leave you then. Well written, Frank. Yeah. Lest you get the wrong idea, Lucilla said, the abilities I was taught are not usually marketed. They have another purpose. Oh, I'm sure they do, Serafa said, but sexual agility is out. Agility? Lucilla allowed her tone to convey the full weight of a revenant mother's outrage. No matter that this might be what Serafa hoped to achieve, she had to be put in her place. Agility, you say? I can control genital temperature. I know and can arouse the 51 excitation points. I 51? 51? But there are only 51! I wasn't even looking at the book when I said that. I was just, I just remembered that. <laughs> 51? <laughs> but there are only. <laughs> you multiply by that by the 200 positions. 200? Surely you don't mean. <laughs> oh, I do. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of stuff that's just silly fun, too, that's really enjoyable. Like when Tag goes down, you know, when we're talking about being a humanist, he's going down to bars, he's going down to little towns to eat soup and he whenever he goes in he's like i am extremely hungry and they have to bring him plate after plate after plate after plate you couldn't even eat a dessert could you yes i could eat i could eat at least three. Oh yeah yeah that was the most Sweet. stunning culinary performance <laughs> 
I, I think again, Frank Frank might have outdone himself. I think this this is up there with the best of the Doom books. You know, I I have said each episode mm. that I think each book is better mm. than the previous one, and I was really challenged for the first half of this yeah. book to keep that up. But by the end of it, I I maintain my belief that each book is better than the last. I think so too. It is a challenge the first half. Yeah, I mean, God Emperor is a fantastic book, but so he, here's the thing that I was thinking about. Up until God Emperor, each book feels like Frank has something that he wants to mm. say, and he's going to write a book so that he can say it. This is the first book to me that feels like it's actually driven by curiosity. Mm-hmm. He wants to know what happens mm-hmm. next, so he's going to write it and let it let it happen. There's much less didactic prose in this. There's much yes. less telling you what's What's the way to think? What's the way to live? And there's more. There's no more deep. There's no later, right? There's no yeah. great prophet who's a mouthpiece for <laughs> the author. Yeah, but there. But, but what you do get are really funny and ironic scenes and scenarios. For example, the 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 little girl who has placed herself at the top of the hierarchy of the, pl- the oh, priests. Yeah. You know what I mean? And they're, yeah. they're running. They're tripping <laughs> over themselves to follow her, her wishes. <laughs> And uh, the kind of power, you know, like there's just really good writing and it doesn't beat you over the head with how mm. good it is. It's just like really clever mm-hmm. scenes. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. There's, a, there's the other great one of Miles Tegg in the bar. They're all drinking and they're all waiting for him to say something. And he just slams down his beer and he says, we're going to take a no ship. And they all say, and they go on an adventure to <laughs> steal the hardest thing in the universe to steal. Yeah. Miles Tag, what a man. What a man. Yeah. Sad that he's yeah. gone. Presumed dead, but that's okay. I'm sure the next book will give us plenty to enjoy. Hopefully not a gola. The final book. What are we gonna do? Brian Herbert. Read other books. <laughs> I guess we'll just have to read so, other books. It's really it's really unfortunate. Why didn't they clone Frank? I need you guys to You're right. That's <laughs> what we need to do. Yeah. Turn him into a an axolotl tank, but he's just uh, like <laughs> molded just... into a desk yeah. with a pen for a hand. All right. Any, any final words on Heretics of Dude? Great fun. All right. Well, talk to you later, Bob and John. Talk to you later, John and Zach. Talk to you later, Zach and Bob. <laughs>